everybody to the Batflip podcast. My name is David. I am here with Matt today. Damien is out uh, taking care of a sick dog. So we are hoping Damien's dog is okay. Uh, but me and Matt are going to bring you uh, episode 151 of the Batflip podcast. We are going to discuss tonight uh, all the awards. Uh, a few of them haven't been awarded yet, uh, including MVP and Cy Young. But uh, we kind of know who's going to win those, I think. There's not really many surprises uh, for the awards show tonight, then we're going to finish up the manager carousel, uh, talk about the last three managers that got uh, hired this last week. Then we're going to go over a few extra news and notes uh, before we kind of finally uh, put the 2023 season to bed and enter the off season with, uh, uh, you know, future transactions and also enter the holiday season because we'll be off next week for Thanksgiving. Matt, how are you doing before we get started? I'm doing pretty good. Um, had a had a pretty nice uh pretty nice week. Uh, watched a lot of football this weekend and uh, just uh hanging out and I'm getting ready for uh you know next week you know short week. You got the holiday coming up, Thanksgiving next week. So um been a been a pretty good week and uh yeah everything's well. Uh, how's how's it been going for you, David? It's going all right. No no complaints. But we are uh you know working towards this off season where I've got the you know, like I think I said it last week too. I'm, I've got all the the optimism of the off season without any of the uh, uh, the actual stuff to you know back it up right now. So I'm uh, just hoping for some more when it comes to uh, the off season for us. Um, but with that, let's uh, kind of get into the uh, awards here, and we'll start with the two that got announced yesterday. So that would be Monday, November 13th. Uh, those were the uh, NL and AL Manager of the Year. We'll start with the AL Manager of the Year and uh, note that that was Brandon Hyde of the Baltimore Orioles, a team that won over 100 games. I, I think this was the clear choice. Matt, what do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, uh, Brandon Hyde did a wonderful job for the Orioles this year. Uh, you know, the largest part of a manager's job is to kind of just guide the team through a grueling long season and it's especially difficult when you have so many young players who have never been through that long and difficult full season and maybe don't have that veteran mentality that of you know going out and doing your job every single day um you know because because in baseball you're going to win a lot of games you're going to lose a lot of games and uh you know i think brandon Hyde did a wonderful job keeping this uh keeping this team you know on stay in the course all year um you know, I think he did a fine job managing their pitching staff as well. I mean, they they had some depth concerns in their pitching staff, had a couple of elite relievers uh, at the back of their bullpen, at least until the end of the season when uh, Felix Batista got hurt. But, uh, you know, their their rotation wasn't, you know, they didn't have there's tons and tons of talent in their rotation. So, uh, you know, managing them to, to have the pitching staff to win over 100 games was, was great. And, uh, you know, pretty much any time you get a manager of the year award, it's such a hard award to judge and a team that, you know, is a new team to the party, the postseason party or a team that you feel like has overachieved uh, anything like that. that That's the guy who's going to win the award. And uh, I think Brandon Hyde definitely did a great job this year and was deserving of this. Yeah, I, I think your your manager of the year award is typically an award where you're just awarding the the guy who happened to be the head of the team that overachieved the most in a given season. And we'll, you know, I think that reflects on the manager of the year for the NL that we'll discuss in a minute. But, you know, Brandon Hyde came from the uh, the Joe Madden coaching tree. He was a, a bench coach of the, I believe, the 2016 World Series winning Chicago Cubs. 
um, went over there, I believe 2019 or 2020, one of those. And he, he's been really, really solid. Um, you know, he managed through kind of the down years of, of that Baltimore team before they got good. And he's being rewarded now for being that steadying presence over there in Baltimore. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely happy for Brandon Hyde. I'm happy that he gets this, this not, you know, award and it's not, it's not really something specifically skillful. I think Craig council has been the, the manager, the runner up to manager of the year, like six times now. So I don't know how much this award means, but yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the, the Brandon Hyde having been there a while. Um, you know, it's kind of rare that when a manager sticks through a rebuild and then doesn't get replaced as the team starts to go into contention mode. Um, and I think that that's something that, you know, maybe last year the plan might have been for Brandon Hyde to, you know, not be there after last year. But they overachieved so much that they kept him around. And now this year they're, you know, a 100-win team. But I, I really like to see them. I mean, you, so many times you see a, a manager, you know, just be the fall guy for the rebuild. And then, uh, you know, they go hire somebody out there when they are ready to compete again. And uh, I think that, that Brandon Hyde um, – I'm glad that he was able to see it out and uh, get to coach this, get to manage this, you know, really good Orioles team now and for the foreseeable future as well. Yeah, you know, and there's there's something to the, the Orioles specifically doing this because this that's not an organization that typically, you know, revolves around winning. They tip, they kind of you know, reward loyalty a little bit more and. You know, I think you've got some other organizations, especially considering the Cubs, who are kind of doing that same thing, where they're coming out of the downturn, and they went and hired, you know, Craig Council for the the most money a manager's ever made, right? It's a it's a different philosophy, uh, and I think that you know the uh, there, there's there's definitely praise to be had on both sides, but um, you know the Orioles are definitely in a different position here, and uh, rewarding Craig, Craig Count or uh, sorry Brandon Hyde is uh, a good a good thing. And uh, hopefully he sticks around with them for a long time, especially after winning a hundred games last year, the national league manager of the year award winner was ship uh, skip Schumacher for the Miami Marlins. Uh, you know, the Marlins won 84 games made the playoffs and they had a really good record in one run games, which if you're going to count a stat towards the manager, typically that's the one that, uh, you know, kind of may- gives the manager the most skill, uh, towards influencing. So, Matt, what do you think about Skip Schumacher taking it over Craig Council and Brian Snicker, uh, who were the runner-ups? Yeah, for, first off, out of those runner-ups, I don't know how Tori Lovello wasn't one of the guys here, too. But uh, Skip Schumacher did it. I mean, he did a great job for the Marlins. I mean, they you have a team that hasn't been to the postseason in, you know, other than the COVID-shortened season, which, you know, I, I honestly don't even count that. The last time they were in the postseason in a real season was 20, 2003. So, you know, it's been 20 years. And, um, you know, the the Marlins, you know, they they added a couple of pieces here and there. But, like, they pretty much had the same roster this year as, as what they had last year and the year before last. And, um, you know, honestly, even, even lesser because they had some injuries to their pitching staff, which, you know, coming into the season, if, I, if someone told me that the Marlins would make the playoffs – I would have thought, well, it, it's. I don't think it's going to happen, but you know, with that pitching staff, everything clicks there. I think they might be able to win enough low-scoring games to, to 
to get up, you know, over over 500 and have a chance if the wild card is low. But I, with all the pitching injuries, I never would have thought that, that the Marlins. I mean, they lost Trevor Rogers, they lost uh, Sandy Alcantara for most of the, or, or not for most of the season, but for a good portion of the season. Um, you know, Sixto Sanchez has never come back. Um, you know, and then of course they had traded Pablo Lopez in the off season. So all these like, you know and Edward Cabrera hadn't worked out. So all these like young Max Meyer got hurt, like all these young, uh, you know, starters that they had coming up that everyone was so excited about, like, you know, none of them except for Luzardo and, you know, even and Braxton Garrett to a certain level have, uh, really panned out at this point, you know, with, especially with Alcantara being hurt. So, um, you know, it, it, the Marlins scrapped together enough runs, um, you know, in, in games that they won enough one run games to, to make it in the postseason. And, you know, that that's just, it was a tough, tough situation to handle. There's a lot of pressure on them. They were kind of had their backs against the wall all year. And I think Skip Schumacher did a good job of kind of handling that, uh, guiding that team. And, and they were able to, to make it to the playoffs. And I think that, you know, it's definitely a, he's definitely a uh, deserving winner of this award. Yeah, I think he is, right? Um, Skip Schumacher did a really good job. You know, the, the Marlins got a lot more out of their bullpen than I think was uh, expected of them in the, the preseason, right? I mean, Tanner Scott kind of emerged as a potentially a star closer. Um, you know, you had A.J. Puck, who they got value out of after trading J.J. Blade for him to the A's. Uh, you know, the, you saw some, some other guys emerge, and the Marlins have a really good development of the pitching, which – is kind of their 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 bread and butter, right? They've got a lot of guys through 97, 98, and Skip Schumacher was able to distribute them, you know, effectively to to keep those runs down. Um, and once they added Jake Berger at the deadline, you know, that's kind of where the offense took took off a little bit. Luis Arias, we we can't talk about the Marlins without talking about Luis Arias, who flirted with 400 for about half the season before kind of falling back to earth, but he still had a really really strong season for. A guy who, you know, is kind of known as a contact hitter, but he was a really effective uh, contact hitter that put together a lot of value for this Marlins team. Was always on base, was always getting base hits. So, it, you know, it's a it's a good award, a, a good award recipient there. And, uh, you know, Councils, Brewers and Snicker and Tori Lavello, all, all, four, all three of those guys probably could have gotten this award. But given the relative expectations going into the season, which is the entirety of the manager of the year award in the first place. Skip Schumacher's the deserving one because the rest of those guys all had some playoff aspirations anyway. Schumacher did not, right, with the Marlins. So uh, definitely a solid award recipient for sure. Let's look at the rookie of the years. And I think I actually got the mixed up. I think the rookie of the years went yesterday. Manager of the year went today, but I went with least important first. Uh, rookie of the year in the AL was Brandon Hyde's shortstop, Gunnar Henderson. Uh, who won in unanimous fashion, uh, beating out, I believe, Tanner Bybee and Tristan Casas, uh, Bybee of the Guardians, Casas of the Red Sox. So Gunnar Henderson, I think he had 28 home runs this year for the, the Orioles, Matt. Uh, worthy Rookie of the Year in your eyes? Oh, absolutely. Um, Gunnar Henderson was the front runner coming into the season, was the top prospect in baseball. Um, you know, he had a fantastic year. Uh, 123 WRC plus on the season. Uh, he had 4.6 WAR this year as a rookie. Um, so I mean that's like a, an all-star caliber player. Um, you know, and as a rookie, and I don't think either one of those other guys. I mean, Casas had some good moments this year. Um, 
you know, he, he he's you know, he's all right. He was really poor defensively, but you know, and played first base as well. But he, you know, he had a good season, one thirty WRC plus for him. And uh, of course he had a lot of plate appearances last year, almost a hundred plate appearances last year. And then um you know, Bibby was a pretty nice piece for the uh, for Cleveland. He he had a good you know a good rookie year. Um, you know, three WAR for him was, was nice. I I kind of surprised Josh Young wasn't a finalist, but um, you know, I, I was that was kind of surprising to me. But but this was a uh, yeah. I mean, Gunnar Henderson was was pretty clearly the guy who should win this award. So um, definitely um, definitely you know definitely a worthy winner. Yeah, and I, I think the big thing when it comes to Gunnar Henderson is that he showed he could stick at shortstop. They aren't having, you know, frantically trying to find a way to move Gunnar Henderson off of shortstop to, you know, put Jackson Holiday there going forward, right? I mean, I think that was the biggest development for Gunnar Henderson. We all knew he could hit. You know, that was never really a question when it came to a prospect like Gunnar Henderson, who was up there at, you know, one, two, three on most prospect lists. Uh, and, and he not not only did he hit, but he put together, you know, a 345 Woba, uh, you know, 123 WRC plus, uh, you know, 28 home runs, 100 runs scored. Right. He did everything well. He ran the bases well, stole 10 bases and, and put together a good fielding year at shortstop. And I think that's the biggest key for me moving forward as a development for the Baltimore Orioles is that Gunnar Henderson can be an effective shortstop for you. You don't have to, you know, pencil Jackson holiday in there going forward. You've got a shortstop now. And uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely deserving of the AL rookie of the year. Uh, It was on your list of our preseason predictions, but we did try to kind of shift our preseason rookie of the year around because our awards were kind of obvious in our eyes going forward in terms of predictions. So uh, you got Gunnar Henderson right there. in terms of the NL Rookie of the Year, uh, that was Corbin Carroll, surprising no one. And, uh, you know, we all mentioned it at, similarly uh, at the beginning of the season in the preview, uh, the awards preview and predictions episode where uh, we all kind of said Corbin Carroll would be that guy. But, I mean, he stole 54 bases. Uh, he had 25 home runs. Uh, he had a 133 WRC plus six wins above replacement. And he led the Diamondbacks to the playoffs and into the World Series. Uh, so, Matt, you know, I, I don't think Corbin Carroll's anything but uh, a worthy of this unanimous pick, but take us through his uh, rookie of the year season. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, he was incredible. Um, just there's not a lot you can say about him, honestly. I mean, he's just he's an he's an awesome player. You know, uh, 133 WRC plus has a rookie playing, um, you know, and, and with his outstanding base running. He actually he actually was a little bit disappointing defensively um, compared to kind of his what, what people think he's going to be. Uh, you know, he was graded as a 70 field as a prospect. And, you know, he was pretty, pretty far, you know, pretty far under that. But, you know, a lot of defensive metrics are noise. So his war really could have been higher. Uh, but six war. I mean, that's, you know. That's a that's a borderline top ten player in baseball as a you know as a rookie and he's only twenty two years old and not to mention the fact that the the Diamondbacks locked him up long term too so just what a talent this kid is um, and you know I, I would be surprised if he doesn't you know I don't know if he'll put up six WAR every single year but I will be surprised if he's not a perennial all star after the season and uh, you know fantastic and to be honest he's such a he was he was such a shoe in for this award 
that I didn't even know who the other finalists were. <laughs> so. Yeah, I'm not going to mention the other finalists as much as you know we we like to keep it open. I this award was so shoe in that we're just going to stick with with you know talking about Corbin Carroll's season because he was just so good this year. Uh, Foolish Baseball put out a video regarding Corbin Carroll's base running specifically uh, had the highest BSR of all time. Uh, that since Fangraphs has been able to measure BSR, which includes, you know, going from first to third and some of those other metrics getting, you know, it, it not calculating against like getting thrown out on the bases and stuff. Corbin Carroll was really, really good uh, at a base running this season. And he was just, uh, you know, that created so much extra value on top of already being a really effective player. I mean, he had a 370 Woba. And I really like Woba because it's kind of boils all the numbers we always look at down to kind of a batting average style number, right? You know, 400 is like amazing. And, and he had a 370 Woba, which was equivalent to like Kyle Tucker, you know, level. If you just kind of look from right, you know, out corner outfielder to corner outfielder, he was, he was like the same level as Cody Bellinger this year. He was get guys who were getting, you know, Austin Riley at a 363 Woba this year, right? Better hitter than Austin Riley just based on that. Uh, that just absolutely remarkable for a guy who's a rookie. And, you know, I, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I really do was that I called that he would be in the MVP conversation uh, to begin the year. But then I also picked him along with Trey Turner based on the stolen bases going up and the stolen bases went up, but neither of them are going to win MVP because somebody else stole a lot of bases. Yeah. And we'll talk about him at the end of this. Yeah. And I do, I do want to mention, I, you know, I downplayed the other finalists. James Altman put up 4.4 war this year, which is awesome for a rookie season. Even though I think he was a little bit lucky on balls and play and stuff. He he had, you know, he's good. He's been good across the board. And then uh, Kodai Senga coming over from Japan had a solid uh, rookie season was, you know, it's kind of hard to vote for him for rookie of the year because he's like a 30 year old. Um, you know, it's. One of those yeah. things where it's like he's a veteran pitcher, so you know he probably loses some points there. But um, you know, both of those guys in a normal year might win Rookie of the Year. But I mean, Corbin Carroll's not normal, so that's true. And yeah, we gotta gotta make sure we get Damian's Dodger in there uh, <laughs> just for for good measure. But um, Altman was really good defensively, and Kodai Senga's ghost fork is going to be you know tormenting the major leagues for several years to come. So I also want to mention Matt McClain. Uh, of the Reds, yeah. right? He he probably gets on this list if if he doesn't go down with injury before yep. September starts and the Reds collapse out of the playoff race. So, uh, you know, he was really good as well. Uh, moving on to the next award, we'll go to the NL Cy Young, or the AL Cy Young, rather. Uh, the three award um, finalists are Garrett Cole, Kevin Gossman, and Sonny Gray. The expected winner is Garrett Cole, and I think that that'll happen. Um, but what are your thoughts on if either Gossman or Gray should overtake Cole in the voting and if any snubs happened on uh, our list here? So I think that um, I, I think that sometimes when you look at these the Cy Young Award, I, I think that you have to look at these guys are real all real similar. I mean, mm-hmm. they all put up, you know, around a, a – you know, around a three ERA, you know, or or slightly below. Gossman was slightly above. They all put a, a around a three FIP. Um, you know, Coles was above three. Sonny Gray's was below, and Gossman was below. Uh, and they all pitched a, a, a really nice workload. Now, Cole did pitch a few more innings than the other guys. He pitched 209 innings. Gray pitched 184, and Gossman pitched 185. Um, you know, it, I, I just 
I think that Garrett Cole will probably win the award. Um, you know, and he had a great year. Um, I, I think that Garrett Cole is underappreciated. And I think in some ways this is probably kind of a career award for him because he's been so good for his career and he's finished second a couple times or, or been in the running and not won it a couple times. Um, and, you know, I think he, he, he does deserve for his career a Cy Young Award at some point. So, you know, this is a year where he's right there. I mean, him, Sonny Gray, and Kevin Gossman were all within 1.1 war of each other, which is pretty remarkable, um, you know, that, that it was it was that close between them. Um, you know, so I, I definitely think that those are the three uh, – those are definitely the three guys who should be the finalists. And, um, you know, I, I really do like um, – I, I do think Garrett Cole's probably deserving just because he basically pitched the same as those guys. He just pitched like 25 more innings. So I think it's probably, it's probably the guy. Yeah, strictly on an earned run average, you know, basis, Garrett Cole's the guy. You know, he and Kevin Gossman, his FIP was the same as Kevin Gossman's ERA. Gossman had a little bit more in strikeouts. You could have talked me into any of these three. You probably oh, yeah. could have lumped Pablo Lopez into this group as well. I, I think he's maybe just a touch behind because the ERA doesn't match the the peripherals for Pablo Lopez, um, and I, I you know I hate to to bring it up, but Garrett Cole does have 15 wins compared to 12 for Gossman and only eight for Sonny Gray. It's not important, but it is a another bullet point towards yeah. I think bringing Garrett Cole above those guys. Yeah. You know, he was just more impactful in some of those games that the Yankees did manage to win. And and one other note on this, um, you know, when you when you have such a close race between three guys, um, I think that you can start to bring in a lot of a lot more of the expected numbers. And Sonny Gray is all, was awesome this year, but he had a 5.2% home run per fly ball rate, which is unsustainably mm-hmm. low, and that really contributed to his, uh, you know, to his fit being so low and his ERA being so low. He he just had some. And, and I mean, he had a great year, don't get me wrong, but he, he had some good fortune on, on fly balls. And when you have basically a three-way tie, um, you know, I think that is something you can, you can kind of factor in as well. One one more note there, just to try to differentiate it a little bit. Garrett Cole did tie for the Major League lead in shutouts uh, with two. He and Framber Valdez each got two shutouts, complete game shutouts. And for a, a kind of a trait that's going away in terms of pitcher stamina that's more and more valuable being able to completely take the bullpen out of the game and and you know keep them fresh for the rest of the series that's something that isn't really getting honored i think that is another point in garrett cole's favor and you just have enough of those where i think it's pretty 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 smart to give garrett cole this award um let's go to maybe a more diversive uh, Cy Young race and let, let's look at the NL Cy Young here the three finalists are Blake Snell Zach Gallen and Logan Webb so first thing Matt tell me why Justin Steele was snubbed from being a finalist and second off tell me why Blake Snell is going to win this award well Blake Snell is going to win this award because he outperformed his fit by over a full run um, but I mean, I, I don't, I, I couldn't, I can't explain Justin still. The only thing that I think is probably not in his favor is he only pitched 173 innings. Uh, he yeah. missed some starts, um, there in the middle of the season. And, um, you know, other than that, I, I really don't, I mean, I would have put him definitely in the top three. Um, you know, if I, the way that I look at, at awards, you know, I always, I, I believe that with pitchers, especially ERA, I, I know it's a great, 
you know it's it, it you know it's a, it's a big deal and and it should be taken to, into account but you know there's a lot of things working against pitchers and i mean Zach Wheeler i, I think you could have made an argument for him i mean he had a yep. you know he 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 had a 315 fip he pitched 192 innings um you know but he was pitching in front of one of the worst defenses in baseball and that kind of contributed to him having a little bit of higher ERA. I mean, Aaron Nola is always the same way. Like he, now he's not really a, a candidate for me this year, but um, he actually had the same WAR as, or he had, yeah, roughly the same WAR as Blake Snell. But um, you know, he's kind of the same way where the Phillies defense gave him a 4.50 ERA when he really probably didn't deserve that. <laughs> um, but um, I mean, I, you could have made an argument for for Spencer Strider to be a finalist because. Yep. I mean, the strikeout numbers were insane, and he definitely had the best rate numbers of expected numbers out of any of them. I mean, he had a 292 xFIP, which led baseball out of starting pitchers. Um, you know, I mean, I, I have a hard time. I would have a hard time voting for a guy who has five walks per nine innings. I mean, I, I just, you know, I know the ERA was great, but a little bit of that's fortune. Um, you know, I, I just, I don't, I don't fully. I don't fully believe in that. So if, if I were to give the award, I mean, out of the three finalists, I guess I would probably vote for – I mean, out of the three finalists, I'd probably say Logan Webb was the best pitcher. I mean, he had a 325 ERA. His rate stats were really good. Had a 295 XFIP, um, you know, and he had five war, two six, 216 innings pitched as well, which was like 40 more innings than, than Blake Snell pitched. and. Um, you know, a couple more innings than Zach Gallen pitched, but I, I, I mean, Zach Gallen had an argument as well. I, it, you know, I just, I think between those two, Spencer Strider, Zach Wheeler, and Justin Steele, you've got guys who are, who had a really good year, and then you've got Blake Snell, who had a little bit of a fortunate year. But um, you know, I mean, when you have a 2.25 ERA on the season, you obviously did something right. So him winning the award, it's not necessarily a, you know, travesty or anything, but um. You know, I, I get why people are voting for him, but I, I just, I, it probably wouldn't be my pick. I, I gotcha. I, I don't want to, I, I would say this is, this would not have been necessarily been my three uh, finalists, I don't think. Uh, Snell is an interesting case because of that ERA, but he had an 87% left on base rate, which was 7% higher than the next closest pitcher, which hilariously enough was Garrett Cole. Who's going to win the other Cy Young? So, you know, Blake Blake Snell's. You, you talked about fortune. I think Blake Snell was. This is maybe one of the most fortunate seasons of all time, given how many walks he truly generated. And I wanted to to pull it up because it's a kind of an absurd number. Blake Snell led all of baseball, not just the NL, all of baseball in walks with 99 walks. If you attack on the hit by pitches, he was over a hundred free batters that he put on base by himself. Right? He only gave up 115 hits. He gave up almost as many walks as he did hits, right? Which is absurd, right? I mean, and, and not only did, did he only give up the 115 hits, but he led baseball in hits, given up as, as a pitcher, right? That that just very, very fortunate year for Blake Snell. And, and, you know, a lot of that is stuff. A lot of that is his, you know, ability to, to create swing and miss with that fastball and the curveball. But, you know, Blake Snell's going to have two Cy Young Awards, like five years apart, and in in each league and have changed teams and you know he has only ever thrown 180 innings twice he's going to have a Cy Young in both of those years so 
this is a guy who just he kind of thrives on that that fortune, right? And and I went back and looked his Cy Young award year, eighty eight percent left on base rate yeah. that year. He got eighty seven percent this year. Um, and look at the BABIP on those two seasons as well. Two fifty six mm-hmm. BABIP this year, two forty one BABIP in twenty eighteen. I mean that's super low. And it's not like Blake Snell's this guy who gets tons of weak contact either. Like he's a strikeout guy. He gets a lot of strikeouts. I mean his um you know his hard hit rate was was thirty thirty four percent. His expected ERA was three seven seven. I mean it, he's you know, he's a great pitcher. Don't get me wrong. Like, and, and, yeah. you know, you can definitely give him this award and I wouldn't totally argue against it because of the, you know, the ERA at the end of the day, he didn't give up a lot of runs, but you know, I, I'm, I'm fully on board with, you know, one of the other guys. At least last, in the last time he won the Cy Young also, he had 21 wins, which makes you feel a little better about it, that he was kind of contributing to the team's success. Spencer Strider had 20 wins. Justin Steele had 16. Zach Gallon had 17. Um, Blake's only had 14, right? And Logan Webb had 11. And, you know, and, and it's just, it's one of those things where, look, wins are not all that. But once you get down to this nitty, we have to nitty grit pick the, you know, the the bare differences between, you know, these elite starting pitchers. I'm I'm looking at those walks, like you said. I'm looking at those those stats that that kind of indicate luck, and then I'm looking at did the team win when you pitched? Wins aren't a great example of that, but Blake Snell's team didn't win as I much mean, as some of these other teams did. I mean, Spencer Strider's team won just about every time he took them out. Yeah, but if you look at Blake Snell too, like I mean, how many times and Logan Webb for sure? How many times mm-hmm. did they leave the game down like one to nothing? I mean. Right. Like it, it's especially for those two because their offenses were bad. Like I, I think Spencer Spencer Strider won two or three games that he gave up like seven runs because the Braves' mm-hmm. offense was just scoring twenty runs. Like it, yeah. You know, it, it is a big um, and that, and that's why wins know. aren't aren't going to be an end all yeah. be all, right? That's something that we we talk about at the end of the discussion to, to yeah. see if there's any way that moves the needle. I do want to note Spencer Strider, 281 strikeouts, 50 strikeouts more than the next top next yeah. best pitcher in Major League Baseball. Uh, I feel like he was very much snubbed from this list, but also you know there's only three names and he had a 386 ERA, so yeah. tough to put him on here, but also tough to leave him off. And then. Um, you know, like I said, Justin Steele was really good this year as well. Uh, you didn't walk anybody. He just kind of showed out, but he only threw seven fewer innings than Blake Snell did this year. Um, and he was probably the favorite to, to get there until September. And it seemed like he kind of ran out of steam once he got to September. Had that blow up start against the Braves that uh, I think was the that's the game after the Seiya Suzuki game. You know, and it was just um, I think it was his last start of the year. And he just he got he wound up. You know, in the fifth inning, giving up like four or five runs that took him over an ERA of three. And I think it kicked him out of the the finalists for Cy Young. Yeah, probably. So with that, let's go over to AL MVP, which seems like it's going to be an obvious one. But I think there's maybe um, a little something happening in the voting that that would kind of drawn it away from uh, being a race. Uh, Shohei Otani is going to win AL MVP, I think, rather easily uh, due to the amount that he pitched this season. But he missed the last half of the year. And the two guys who are going to follow him up in voting are Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon, uh, both of whom are World Series champions. So, you know, we've litigated Otani a lot, I think, over the last week, um, given that he is currently a free agent. But uh, first of all, let's let's go through his season and note why he's going to be the MVP. But, um, you know, 
I would say I think the two Texas guys, if one of them had been able to compile numbers equivalent to Otani offensively, I think there would have been a, a run for the money. And I think there's a little bit of vote splitting here um, between those guys. But Otani's just he's something else, man. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Otani, you talk about Corey Seager. Otani played 20 more games than Corey Seager. Or 15 more games than Corey Seager, actually. Like, he, Corey Seager, if you remember, had a hamstring injury, missed a lot of time, too. And he still put up 6.1 war. I mean, Otani, as a pitcher alone, put up more war than either one of those guys. I mean, as a, as a DH alone, put up more war than either one of those guys. And then, of course, he had a, a pretty good season on the mound as well, putting up, a, you know, looks like two and, a, two and a half war on the mound to go along with his six and a half war, uh, you know, at the plate. So, um, you know, I, I mean, I don't see, I don't think you can vote against Otani on this award. I mean, Corey Seager, I think if you look at, like, I think there's an argument to be made if, if you are somebody who looks at, like, team success with the MVP for, for Corey Seager, because he really drove a, a lot of the Rangers' success as a team. Uh, you know, they don't win the World Series without Corey Seager. Um, so I, I, if you, if that's the angle that you look at, you could maybe make an argument there, but like, I mean, it, you know, I mean, Shohei Otani put up nine war on the season, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, he put up three more war than either one of these guys. And, and Marcus Simeon had a great year and I'm glad he's a finalist because he deserves to be a finalist, but, uh, you know, he played 162 games. He put up, you know, 753 plate appearances this year, <laughs> um, which is crazy. And uh, he, set, he had a great – what's that? He set the record for most yeah. played appearances in a season combining playoffs yeah. and regular season. So yeah. you don't see that very much from, from guys anymore. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, 6.3 war for him maybe is a little bit – you know, his rate stats aren't as good as those other guys. I mean, he was he had a 124 mm-hmm. WRC plus. Now, he was a great, a great defender, and he rated out well metric, by the metrics on base running, although he didn't steal a ton of bases, which, you know, so his counting stats won't quite be there, but uh, you know, 100 RBIs and 122 runs for him was nice. He almost hit 30 homers, he hit 29. Um, but definitely those other two guys. I mean, Corey Seager and and Shohei Otani are the two top. And and I mean, I just you know, I don't see how you can. I don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shohei Otani should win it. Yeah, I mean, he he was yeah. the best hitter in baseball this year, and it, it's one of those where if you had taken if you took the pitching out completely, right, which you can't do, but if you took the pitching out completely, he'd still win this award, which blows my mind, right? I mean, and that's why he's going to set the record for biggest contract, you know, awarded here. Um, yeah, he's just a special player. He's a special a special person. He's a, the kind of guy I think every fan base should be clamoring that their team, you know, gets the, the sign here. Uh, and it's going to be up to, you know, it's going to be up to him. He's going to have his choice of, of where he wants to go. And uh, he's going to have an, a fresh, shiny MVP award. I believe that's his second MVP award because last year he yeah. didn't get it because they're a judge. So, um, you know, two MVP awards and, and coming off of a three year stretch where he had a WRC plus of 150, 142 and 180. in those in those three years, which was pretty comparable to the Aaron Judge. <laughs> The Aaron Judge that. three years before, right? I, I mean, say, Aaron Ju- Judge, Judge had the two sixteen or two sixteen, yeah. Like, it, it was uh, you're right. I think it was two oh six, but before that, it was like one fifty, one fifty. Yeah. So, uh, one fifty, one, yeah, one fifty, one forty, right? So, yeah. you know, a little bit, pretty much, pretty much a similar 
amount uh, of success, right, in the three years leading up to uh, the free agency. So if you were just signing the DH Shohei Otani, which you're not, right, you're signing him for the potential to be a more than that, but you're essentially signing Aaron Judge, who just made $360 million over 10 well, years, nine years, right, with the Yankees on, in his last contract, so... I was, well, I was going to say, I mean, it, you know, Aaron Judge also plays really good outfield defense. So, you know, the just straight up DH to outfield to Aaron Judge comparison probably isn't the best, but, but it's still, I mean, Aaron Judge put up over 10 more last year. So, mm-hmm. like, it's, but, but either way, I mean, yeah, Shohei as a, as a hitter alone is worth a huge contract. And then, of course, you add in the fact that after this year, he will hopefully be back on the mound and healthy uh, on the mound. But, um, you know what a talent he is it's just i'm glad we get to watch him it's fun no snubs on the al mvp list let's go to the nl mvp list where i also don't believe that i I believe one guy is going to get snubbed here but uh currently the the finalists are ronald acuna mookie betts and freddie freeman Uh, ronald acuna is going to win this award matt olson was he snubbed 54 home runs i don't think he was really snubbed um i think that you know, he put up over he the the only guy. I mean, Mookie and and Ronald are definitely gonna are easily the top two. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you look at Freddie Freeman versus Matt Olson then, and you could make an argument for either one of them. Um, uh, you know, one one argument that you could make is you know the, the the metrics on defense. Freddie Freeman graded out a lot better on defense than Matt Olson. Now, first base defense can be a little bit wonky, especially with those metrics. Um. You know, Freddie Freeman put up a uh, 163 WRC plus to Matt Olson's 160. The one thing that I will say about that is Freddie Freeman had a 370 batting average on balls in play, which is like unsustainably high. He just had a really fortunate year with with his batted ball luck, which I mean, I don't mean to demean his season. It was fantastic, but you could you could argue that he probably you know you know that Matt Olson was probably the pure pure talent better hitter. But I mean, Freddie Freeman put up over a full war. More Freddie Freeman. Freeman also was a fantastic base runner, uh, putting up a putting up a great, um, you know, a great twenty three stolen bases and um, you know o- over five base running value. Um, so I don't think Matt Olson was snubbed. I think you could have argued for him with the home run record, but I don't think he was really snubbed. Uh, but yeah, out of the three, I mean, Ronald Acuna Jr. and Mookie Betts were both the top two and. Uh, they actually ended up tied in war, but you know Ronald Acuna's season was historic with the stolen bases, 73 stolen bases. Um, you know Mookie Betts is definitely a better defensive player that, than Ronald. Kept his, uh, you know, kept their wars very similar. But um, you know when you hit 41 homers and steal 73 bases, and you know that that historic is that that's going to be the tiebreaker here. And, you know, it's just that that is just an unbelievable year and and you can argue too i mean ronald acuna he meant so much to the braves the pressure he put on other teams um you know at the beginning of games like just he was insane i i i found a stat here uh, while you were going through acuna since 1995 so my entire lifetime since basically the 94 strike when um, you know, they kind of introduced the steroid era and whatnot. Ronald Acuna had the second highest pure run total since 1995. 
The only guy hired was Jeff Bagwell in 2000, whom I believe won. And I know he didn't win an MVP that year, but, uh, you know, that was a historic year for, you know, the steroid era and a bunch of guys, you know, juicing and all the, the runs are coming from 90, 95 through 2001, basically. Ronald Acuna has cemented himself in in the run leaderboard as number two behind Pagwell. And that's with 73 stolen bases. That's with 41 home runs. That's in an era where pitchers are throwing faster, where average pitcher is a much better player. Um, and, and, you know, Ronald Acuna has put down a, a season of historic proportions and he will get awarded as such, I believe, I think Thursday when they when they announce the MVP. Um, his, what's funny, I think about Acuna season two was we've, we talked about it a number of times, but he cut his strikeout rate in half. Uh, it, it, it finished at 11.4. He almost walked as much as he struck out. I believe in total, he walked one less time than he struck out, including intentional walks, which is objectively hilarious given that his, his issue kind of a couple of years ago was that he was striking out too much. Uh, and this year he was gone and, and cut the strikeout rate completely in half. He also had an ex Woba of 463, which, you know, I talked about Woba being, you know, 400 is pretty good. Well, 463 led baseball by 40 points over Shohei Otani in terms of expected you know, weighted on base average. He was unbelievable this season. Yeah. His, his average exit velocity was 94.7. A hard hit ball is 95. So he basically averaged a hard hit ball every time he made contact. Yeah, I mean that's that's absurd. And he underperformed his expected batting average by like twenty points at, at, while being while being second in the league in in, in average. Mm-hmm. He also he underperformed his expected slugging by over sixty points. And right. that's this is a guy who had a six hundred slugging percentage. So, I mean, it just like this season was just bonkers. How how insane he was. He had a, eighty six barrels this year. Yeah. He also had the hardest hit ball in baseball. He hit a ball one hundred twenty one miles per hour. Right. I mean, just an obscene season from Ronald Acuna. Very deserving MVP award that he's going to win here in a few days. Um, I don't think there was any other mention here. Betts and Freeman, both good. Matt Olson, very good. Maybe could have been a top three player, but I think everyone was chasing Acuna. You know, when you when you boil it down, uh, a defense, not a big issue there either. So let's move away from the awards finally and, and switch over to the manager carousel where uh, three more jobs were wrapped up. I believe the Padres are still to hire their coach. And then once that happens, we will, you know, mention it and wrap it up. Uh, and, and then these teams will start to kind of fill out their rosters for next season. So uh, first things first, we will start with, I believe, the first move that was made, which was Ron Washington, who was a coach with the Braves, getting hired by the Angels to manage once again. He, If you recall, he managed the Texas Rangers to the World Series in 2010 and 2011. So, uh, Matt, what do you think about Ron Washington to the Angels? Yeah, Ron Washington to the Angels, very, very, very interesting. Um, you know, Ron Washington's an, an unbelievable guy. He, um, he's been around forever. He's... I mean, he has been a coach since the mid 1990s, um, and he was a player. His career, his career in baseball started in 19 in the big leagues started in 1977. So, I mean, he's been around for almost 50 years in baseball, um, and uh, you know, he's 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 you know he he's been you know he's been a manager before uh, with the Rangers. He went to he went to the World Series twice as their manager. Um, 
So he's got a track record of success. He's got a winning record as a manager in his career, 664 and 611 record. Um, you know, with 521 winning percentage, pretty pretty solid. Um, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, and he's been instrumental in the Braves success the last few years as a coach, as a guy who, you know, works really well with the infielders and, and, and being in the infielder, uh, doing a lot of infielder drills. They've really improved. Uh, you know, you got guys like like Austin Riley defensively in Atlanta that just went from being like a guy who most people didn't expect to be able to stick in the infield to being like a at least league average third baseman as as a defender. Um, and you had you have guys also like like Dansby Swanson who you know was expected to be an above average defender who became like an elite defender with Ron Washington's help. And Ozzy Albies you know is a similar way. So. You know that they they've they've been that's kind of been his calling card um, as a third base coach, and now he's back as a manager again. Very happy for Ron Washington um, to to get another shot at managing. I'm a little bit confused by the move for the Angels because you know you're bringing in a 71 year old manager when you're going into a rebuild. I mean, it seems like he's going to be brought in as kind of a stopgap type, which um, you know. I, I'm a little confused by that, but you know, I would think you'd probably want to go young with your manager. You got a lot of young players there, but uh, I definitely understand wanting to bring a guy like Ron Washington to kind of stabilize your organization. But it reminds me a little bit of the, you know, Dusty Baker hire from the Astros, um, you know, and um, you know, we'll see how it works. I mean, I, I think that his team will love playing for him and they will, he knows how to manage a clubhouse. And um, I think that that'll show next year. And, with the angels i'm a little confused in the same reason right I'm, but ron washington's such a, a good guy and you know he's one of the i i would say he's he's to me what i everyone thought dusty baker is right and, and at least at least i think he's a you know a stand-up guy a stand-up coach the kind of guy you're it's easy to root for so i'll certainly be rooting for ron washington in los angeles but the angels are a dumpster fire right we've talked about it at length so the question is, you know, what are the Angels going to do with Ron Washington there? You know, are they going to sell off? Are they going to drop, you know, Mike Trout? Or are they going to do, what are they going to do? And, you know, I, if Ron Washington can simply guide them through this, I think that they'll kind of let him walk off into the sunset in terms of a, a major league career with his held head held high as, as they turn it around over the next two or three years. But it's tough, man. This Angels team is really, really far away, I think, especially as they lose Otani. And, uh, yeah, it's not a good situation for Ron Washington to be stepping into. For a manager stepping into a really good situation, let's look at Joe Espada, who is going to take Dusty Baker's spot as the Astros manager. Uh, Joe Espada has been in manager rumors for several years now and never left Houston. And it was always kind of a questionable, why, did he, why didn't he take that job type of moment? Um, but it's pretty evident that he wanted to just take Dusty Baker's place when he retired. I think that they said it was like his dream job. So uh, what do you think about Joe Espada of the Astros? I think this is a, a perfect fit and a, a really good hire. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a totally fine hire. I mean, he's he doesn't have any managerial experience, but I mean, he's been around successful franchises. He was with the Yankees from 2015 to 2017, which uh, as a, I think he was their third base coach. Which you know, obviously they they were pretty successful. They went to the ALCS in, in seventeen, um, you know, and, and then with the Astros. I mean, he's won you know a World Series title for the Astros as a as a bench coach, and uh, 
you know, I think this is a continuity hire for them. Um, you know, I think they like their clubhouse. They like what they have there right now. And uh, they didn't want to change a lot of things. So I, I think this is definitely one of those deals where I think they kind of said, hey, this guy's going to kind of keep the status quo in the clubhouse and everything. But he's probably also going to be uh, maybe a little bit more, you know, open to the analytics and stuff and, and, and more like not playing Martin Maldonado every night. Um, so I think it's kind of a, 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 a you know, kind of nice to see for, for them. And, you know, you do worry sometimes about a first time manager. You, you've, you've had some of these situations in the past few years where a real qualified candidate comes in and tries to do too much and, um, you know, and, and really has a hard time. Like you've seen it maybe with, uh, Ollie Marmol or, or somebody like that, who, who look, seemed to be like a really quality candidate had been able to franchise and, and just didn't do well. But, um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't imagine that's going to happen here. I, I definitely think this was a, you know, this was the right hire for the Astros. Now, the report that came out also kind of with this hire was that the Astros were going to keep the, keep the books a little tight this off season. I know I projected them to, to sign a free agent, but I think that was it last week on our free agent show. Espada's kind of got his team basically right is the, the message there. Um, and, you know, it's a team that he knows. It's a team that he's worked with for multiple seasons now. Uh, but it's a team that is tr- kind of beginning that slow trend away from, I think, uh, the top of the league, right? A- and it's kind of, it's not the best spot you want to be in if you're a manager is watching your team start to age, right? Altuve's in his mid-30s. Bregman's approaching free agency. Tucker's approaching free agency. Well, like Altuve's approaching free agency, too. He's a free agent after next year. Right. right. And, you know, and that's the big kicker is, you know, the report that came out said they want to keep Altuve an Astro for life. And that might come at the expense of Alex Bregman, right? And as they kind of have to sponge away this um, – you know, the aging curve of some of these guys kind of he's also got to keep Jordan Alvarez healthy, right? There's a lot going on here. And it's also a team, right? It's Justin Verlander's in the rotation. There's not a whole lot of depth behind, you know, the top three or four in the rotation. So, you know, there, a lot of the bullpen is now free agents, right? Phil Maton's a free agent and some of the other guys are free agents. So uh, Neris is a free agent. I was going to say, we'll see about the rotation because they had so many guys that went down this year. Mm-hmm. Like next year, you're probably going to have, you know, McCullers come back. You're probably going to have Luis Garcia come back. You're probably going to have, uh, you know, I, I think both of those guys are, are a pretty big deal coming back. There's one more that I'm blanking on that, that they also were missing a, a good portion of the year. Hunter so. Brown, maybe? No, I mean, he pitched. He was there most of the year. But, he I mean, was, another yeah. year of development for him, too, right. I mean, is, is big. And I mean, I, I do think their pitching will be okay. But, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's just that this is an aging roster, and, and – you know, I, I hope this. I hope that Joe Espada, even if he doesn't have the record that the previous managers have had there, I don't think it'll be his fault. Mm-hmm. Right. So with that, let's move over to the final slot that was filled today, which was Pat Murphy uh, being hired by the Brewers to take over for Craig Council, who was the longest tenured manager in the National League. I think that now falls to Dave Roberts, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, you know. Pat Murphy was the bench coach for Milwaukee. He was rumored to be interested in going with Craig Council, but Milwaukee has uh, gone ahead and promoted him in the effort to keep him in the organization. He's a, a bit of a grizzled old veteran type of guy who um, I think will will be the right kind of fit for this Milwaukee team, which is always scrappy and kind of always needs to punch above their weight, uh, which is what Craig Council was really good at. So 
uh, Pat Murphy to the the Brewers. What are your thoughts? Yeah, um, you know, for what first off, Pat Murphy was an awesome college coach. I don't know if anybody knows that, but he, uh, you know, he went six twenty nine and two eighty four with Arizona State. They went to the College World Series multiple times. Uh, three times, I believe, uh, four times, actually. He went to the College World Series, and uh, he also was a really good coach at Notre Dame, too, uh, mm-hmm. where he made it to four different regionals. So he he, he was an awesome college coach. Um, you know, he went to the, went to the Padres, and, um, you know, he was a – he actually managed uh, about a – I believe about a half a season as their interim when they fired Bud Black. Um, so he's got some managerial experience in the big leagues to a certain level. But, uh, you know, this is this is kind of the same thing where, you know, the Brewers did not want to pay Craig Council. And they said, well, you know, this guy knows everybody and he's kind of he can kind of keep the clubhouse, the status quo, what we've seen, you know, these last few years. And uh, but he's not going to cost as much. So I, I think that the Pat Murphy was definitely the the right, you know, a, a good hire for them as as in he's just going to keep things going how they already were. And, um, you know, I, we'll see what happens with his uh, – we'll see what happens here. I mean, it's kind of another – also similar in, in the way that I think the Brewers, you know, they got these pitchers approaching free agency. They're kind of at a crossroads a little bit as a franchise. A lot of young players coming up that, you know, are talented on the position player side, but the pitching is going to be a problem here soon. It's Honestly, this, this team's going to flip-flop. They've been like this really good pitching team for the last few years who was struggling to hit. Well, now they're going to be a really good hitting team that's struggling to pitch pretty soon. So, uh, but we'll see what happens with, with, with him. I, I think he'll do a fine job. I just don't know if he'll get the same kind of credit because, you know, as Craig Council leaves, so does part of their, you know, star players in their roster. So, um, you know, you might look at it as a huge downgrade at the end of the day, record-wise, but, you know, it might not really be his fault, kind of in the same way that Houston Houston might look that same way too. Yeah, I think I think that sums it up pretty nicely. In the effort of time, I'll leave my thoughts with on Pat Murphy. With you know, I think that the Brewers did. They were just trying. They were trying to get the right guy, but they were also trying to keep Pat Murphy from following Greg Council. Um, so I think there's something there. I think the 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 report is the Brewers owner is really really mad <laughs> about the Council decision and. Um, you know, I think there's going to be some animosity next season, I think, towards, you know, between those two clubs. We'll have to keep an eye on it because it could be really entertaining. Uh, but in terms of Pat Murphy, you know, he's the perfect guy to lead that, right? I mean, he's a, you know, a guy get red in the face, kind of Clint Hurdley is kind of how I'm expecting Pat Murphy to be. So I think he'll be a good manager for them. Let's go over some of the smaller news and then we'll try to talk about the Padres last year. Uh, I want to note that all the qualifying offers were rejected. Uh, by the seven free agents that we discussed last week. So all seven of those guys stay remaining free agents not uh, and are tied uh, to compensation. It will affect their markets a little bit with the exception of Otani, but I don't think, except for maybe Sonny Gray, yeah. I don't think it's going to really hamper anyone badly. I think all the teams that are we're expecting to jump in on, on free agent pitchers are going to be perfectly willing to pay those the extra draft pick of a price uh, to get one of those guys on their team. My one exception would be that it will improve Jordan Montgomery's market as he is the only starting pitcher not named Yoshinobu Yamamoto, uh, who was not tied to a qualifying offer among that group. 
Yeah, uh, I agree. I mean, I, I think you could definitely see Sonny Gray maybe maybe be limited a tiny bit by that. But, I mean, teams are so desperate for pitching that I, I really don't think, you know, especially for a guy who's just a Cy Young finalist, I, I really don't think that they're going to – it's going to impact mm-hmm. these guys too, too much. It's not one of those situations where, like, like last year with Jock Peterson, where if Jock Peterson didn't – you know, didn't take the qualifying offer. He probably could have gotten a multi-year deal, but it was going to be, you know, it was going to be like nobody's going to sign him and lose the draft pick. Like, so, but, but I mean, it's, I think that, the, I don't think it's going to really hamper any of these markets this year. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, longtime White Sox announcer Jason Benetti does go to the Tigers. I want to mention that because, it's further indication of some dysfunction in that White Sox organization. Benetti's been a White Sox fan his entire life. He called that the TV job there a dream job, uh, but was reportedly unhappy with the direction the, the franchise was going and um, was unwilling to bend to not discuss that. And therefore, they kind of let him leave on a free agent year, and the Tigers swooped him up, and the Tigers broadcast was notoriously one of the more poor ones also uh, the white Sox not real happy that he was a national guy so yeah i think this is a i think this is a really good move for the tigers and for benetti but a really bad fumble by the white Sox. yeah i think that um i think that he definitely you know that that his national work um you know and he's been doing that for a long time but i think his national work definitely is is part of the reason the white Sox were wanting to move on and I don't really understand that I mean you know if you 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 want your announcer you want to have great announcers and you know if if your announcers are great then they're probably going to get some national assignments and I I don't so I don't understand why you would get so so upset about that unless they just did not want to pay you know someone else a small sum of money to call like the five games a year he misses you know I I, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, you know, I, I definitely think it's a mistake by the White Sox to not bring him back. And, uh, you know, there's also the story of him having cerebral palsy, um, you know, and, and he, that was, he's, he's a big inspiration to a lot of people. Um, and that, you know, that, that just kind of makes this more like, you know, he, he mentioned in his interview about how like, that he could kind of take on the persona of the Tigers because people kind of forget about Detroit and stuff, you know, and, and don't see them for what they are. Whereas like he might not be seen for what he is because of that. I, I heard that. I think Ken Rosenthal was, was talking about that. Um, I thought that was a pretty cool, like just, I think that was a pretty cool like thing for him to, to come out and say, you know, and, and uh, you know, I'm pulling for him to do really well. Um, and I'm sure that, Tigers fans are probably going to be thrilled with this. So, yeah, absolutely. Love Jason Minetti. Uh, want to also note the Brian Cashman and Giancarlo Stanton's <laughs> agent have been going back and forth uh, in somewhat dramatic way. I think there will be more tail, more steps to this tale, but the gist is Giancarlo Stanton's agent uh, had to kind of combat some remarks, offhand remarks by Brian Cashman, you know, indicating displeasure with Stanton's injured uh you know injury prone nature and uh you know that's also yoshinobu yamamoto's agent so it it might take the yankees either out on yoshinobu yamamoto or it it might drive the price up on them and uh you know leave some of the other teams we discussed as more favorites for for yamamoto specifically yeah i mean i I don't know if it's going to affect them with yamamoto that much just because i mean if yamamoto wants to be a yankee i don't think his agent's going to say well my other client didn't you know, is having a problem with them. So I'm not going to let you sign there. Like, I, 
I, I don't think that's going to matter too, too much. But, I mean, this Cashman-Stanton thing, it, I think to me it just reflects extremely poorly on, on Cashman. I mean, mm-hmm. I've been really critical of him over the last few years. He's made a lot of really dumb moves. And this year he's just seemed kind of unhinged um, with some of the comments he's made. And you, you don't come out and, and t- say – I mean, by all accounts, I mean, I don't think John Carlos Stanton is pulling like a Pablo Sandoval where he gets paid and then just doesn't even try anymore. Like – I think he's trying. He's just got some injury issues. And, I mean, Cashman comes out in the pub- with a public statement talking about how, you know, you can't count on him and you just got to plan for him to be hurt all the time. You just can't – you can't do that as a, as a GM. Like, that's that's Bush League, and um, I, I really don't like it. And I think Stanton sh- and his agent should be furious with Cashman for saying stuff like that. And, I mean, I, I just – you know that's that's very unprofessional for a GM, and, and it and that should affect other free agents. I mean, they should look at Cashman and say this guy this guy has no idea what he's doing. He's just there because he's been there a long time. The Yankees don't want to fire the guy who's been there for thirty years. Like, I mean, they, he should have been fired a couple of years ago, honestly. And I, I just think it's really poor. Um, I just think it's really poor uh, from Cashman here. Yeah, I think. You have to take that into effect. It's like if you sign a big contract, you know, when's Carlos Rodon's turn, right? You know, when, if if Cody Bellinger signs that contract and then reverts to 2021, 2022 yeah. self, you know, like, I mean, what, what's what's the GM going to say about that, right? Like, look at the trades he's made. I mean, yeah. look at Montas, Frankie Montas. Well, Stan I mean, was a trade he made, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, yeah, it's Frankie Montas. Look at, um, the, Rizzo uh, got trade. hurt last year too. Yeah, look at well, look at the trade with the with the Cubs. They traded uh, Efros. Like, yeah, I mean, he, then he immediately gets like it, you don't. I, I understand Cashman maybe being a little bit frustrated because some of the injury issues guys have had, but like a lot of these guys you knew had injury issues when they came in. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, so I mean Stanton's injury issues that he currently has are not related to anything he ever had in, in Miami. So I understand being frustrated that he keeps getting hurt, but it's. I mean, it's not Stanton's fault necessarily. It's just—I mean, I honestly think a lot of it's bad luck too. And um, you know, I—but I, I just think it's—you know—if Stanton is truly out there trying really hard to to play, and he obviously, you know, is when he plays. He last year he was struggling, but you know, he's typically still pretty good when he plays. Like you can't come out and say stuff like Cashman saying as a as a GM, it's unprofessional. Right. Uh, I'm with you on that. Finally. Uh... Padres owner Peter Seidler has passed away today. Um, I think there will be more ripples to to come out of this one, so we'll just leave yeah. it with rest in peace, Peter Seidler. It could affect the way the Padres deal with this offseason, though, because he was likely going to be one of the guys that was clambering to keep Juan Soto for the final year, and if their budget really is as bad as it seems like it is, um, it seems like Peter Seidler was going for it really, really heavily before um, – you know, I think I think he was battling with cancer, and he seemed like he was going for it before something bad happened, and it appears the bad has happened now. So, um, I I we'll see, right? Because we we just we don't know yet, but I I have a feeling this will impact the Padres and may impact the trade market uh, going forward this offseason. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm with you on that. I definitely, you know, thoughts to Peter Seidler and his family. Um, you know, I think that um. Uh, this definitely muddies up the off season because uh, the Padres were going to be a big player one way or another in this off season, and um, 
now you, you don't really even have an owner at all. Like you don't know who who's calling the shots. Um, you've got a manager, you got a, a GM that's kind of, you know, really the the thing that was holding him own was that Seidler liked him. I mean, there's really nothing about AJ Preller that has been successful. Um, you know, in his tenure there, I mean, he hadn't done he has not done a very good job and you know he's a guy that with his resume he probably would have been fired twice by someone else and Seidler liked him and believed in him and uh now you know I we I don't know who you know I'm assuming that Seidler's family is in charge of the team now um and um I don't know if they're going to you know if they if they want to spend the kind of money that Seidler wanted to spend um we don't know we don't know what this does for their payroll um we don't know what this does for their direction. Are they going to sell the team to somebody else who might want to come in and spend more money or, um, or what, but you know, at the end of the day, like this is just, uh, you know, today it's about Peter Seidler and, and, you know, sad that he passed away. And, um, you know, uh, hopefully, um, you know, I'm, you know, thinking about his family and, and, and everything. So. It's frustrating to me that we didn't get, we don't have more baseball owners like Peter Seidler. A guy who did finally step it up and say, you know what, yeah. we can spend money. We can transform us. What is a small market team that doesn't win anything into a team that acts like a big market team? You know, and I think he he accepted some risk because of maybe some of the health health issues. He accepted some risk, you know, to try to win up front. And obviously, we talked about how it does didn't work, but I I believe that this is done in the right way. Right, it's done with the the purpose of of creating excitement for the San Diego Padres, and I think that's to be commended. Um, and you know, yeah, we'll we'll hope we'll see what happens with the rest of the Padres uh, off season this year. But uh, thoughts and prayers are with Peter Seidler's family. So, with that, Matt, any final thoughts before we sign off on this uh, episode 151 of the Batflip Podcast? Um, not too much. Uh, you know. Uh, obviously, I'm kind of surprised we haven't gotten any signings yet, other than just the the extensions that were within the that five day extension window. Um, you know, we usually start to have a couple of early signings where, where guys jump on contracts or teams jump jump the market early. I'm assuming that probably happens fairly soon. I do wonder if part of the 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 problem was you know the GM meetings got ended early because of uh some uh because of some um you know some some virus is going around so that might be uh you know that might have slowed the market down especially the trade market because i do think a lot of trades kind of get format formatted in that even if they don't become official till later but uh you know interesting today there's you know they had the, the rule five deadline uh to protect prospects it'll be interesting to see if anybody gets picked in the rule five but i don't think there's any notable you know anything notable with that and uh you know, Friday's the non-tender deadline. Um, that's an important day. There's not a lot of prep we can do for you on it because we are, you know, every team's got three or two or three guys at least that, that may or may not get non-tendered. But basically, if you don't tender them a, a, a contract offer by Friday um, to, to arbitration-eligible players, um, which is year four through six in the big leagues, yep. basically, of service time, basically, then you then that player becomes a free agent if you don't tender them a, a, a contract offer. So, you know, and I think that, um, 
you know, you could see some movement. I mean, last year, last year was unusual because of Cody Bellinger getting non-tendered, which I don't think that's ever really happened where a former MVP gets non-tendered. But there were some other guys last year too, like, like Jamer Candelario got non-tendered and he ended up having a really good year this year. So, um, you know, that there's, there, it's definitely something to keep an eye on and there will be a few notable, um, there, there will certainly be a few notable, um, you know, guys who, who get non-tendered, you know, there's always some surprises and, and they become like free agents that, that do get picked up by somebody and, and are impactful next year. So that is an important day to watch. And we'll probably talk more about it on our next episode. Yeah. Kyle Schwarber was non-tendered a few years ago. Yeah, like you'll see names you recognize uh, get non-tendered via, you know, performance issues, injury issues, uh, or, you know, various other things we're also running up towards the rule five draft as well if anything interesting happens there we'll let you know um a lot of guys were protected today so you know i think teams are starting to prepare for that non-tender deadline and then once that hits i think then we'll see some more movement because teams like the cubs filled out their 40 man today uh and they're gonna have to dfa or non-tender some guys uh before friday uh, before friday's deadline to open up some space to sign some free agents so uh you know with that yeah, I'm David. That was Matt. Uh, this is the Bat Flip Podcast. We'll see you guys in two weeks after Thanksgiving. Everyone have a good holiday.